Welcome to The Important Part, Investing with Liz Young. I'm Liz Young, Head of Investment Strategy at SoFi, here to help cut through the large amount of information out there about investing and get to the important part. With the help of my guests, you'll gain valuable insights, new perspectives, and the knowledge to confidently make your investment decisions. Well, here we go. The debut episode of The Important Part. I could not be more excited to have the chance to talk markets in a podcast format. I love the name of this podcast, The Important Part, mostly because I came up with it, (laughs) but also because it requires no explanation. Every interview I do, every time I give you my take on a topic before the interview, my main goal is to get to the important part, the important questions, the important takeaways. That said, you're about to listen to my conversation with Jason Trenert, who I'll introduce more properly in a minute. Jason can talk about many, many things related to the market, but what I want you to take from this debut episode is what really matters at the end of the day to a seasoned investor and entrepreneur. He'll talk about what it was like to start a company right before the last economic crisis, which is fascinating. He'll talk about what he thinks every investor, new and experienced, should never underestimate. That's the stuff that matters. But I'll tell you what matters to me. Not overcomplicating it. Not getting too cute with it. And not making so-called rules about investing that have little relevance in the long term. Recently, I wrote about seasonality in markets, and we're sitting here in fall, which is historically a tough season for markets. Unfortunately, this fall has been no exception so far. September's seen quite a few down days. But does that mean you should sell all of your stocks at the end of August every year? Of course not. Because over your investment horizon, there'll be many more fall seasons, and you can't, nor should you, try to avoid them all. History can give us insights. It doesn't give us commands. So sure, we can learn from others' mistakes, we can learn from our own mistakes, and we can try not to make the same mistakes again. But at the end of the day, the important part is to be gaining the experience of investing on our own. Plus, people tend to learn more when the market goes down than they do when the market goes up every day. So embrace the bumps. All right, I mentioned you were going to hear my conversation with Jason Trenert. Let me now properly introduce him. Jason is the chairman and chief executive officer of Strategus, an institutional brokerage and advisory firm which originally began with just five employees and now employs over 50 people at its offices in New York and Washington, D.C. Jason is a regular guest on CNBC, CNBC Italia, Fox Business, and Bloomberg TV, among others. He attributes much of the success of his market calls to keeping an ear to the ground by talking to other investors across the country as often as he can. One of the things Jason and I agree on is that there's no substitute for in-person conversations, especially when it comes to investing. Let's get to the interview. Well, hi, Jason. Thank you for joining me, especially on my first episode ever. I'm so excited to have you. Well, Liz, thank you for having me. It's a great privilege. (laughs) You're a friend and a scholar. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's start with who Strategus is. You co-founded the company in 2006, and as a matter of fact, just celebrated your 15th anniversary, so huge congrats on that. What was it like to start the firm? Well, so Strategus is a Wall Street research boutique, and that was a term that was used a lot more in the 70s and 80s. Boutiques essentially were research firms that had brokerage attached to them, and they dealt with institutional investors. And they still exist. We're one of them. But they became less and less really able to do their jobs without investment banking. Now there's a handful of us. 
but we have a kind of an old Wall Street tradition. So we do research, we have trading, and our clients are institutional investors. And so that's that's who we are. That's the, the nature of the firm. And so we sell research to institutional investors. What was it like starting the firm? I mean, it was scary because it was our own dough. You know, it was our own money. It was frightening, but it's the labor of love. It's kind of like the old army thing. It's the toughest job you'll ever love. And it's a bit easier now because the firm is established. But at the beginning, you know, there were some white knuckle moments. The reason I ask that is because right now there's a ton of people starting new businesses, right? There's people that have left the workforce during the pandemic and decided to go forge it on their own. What should people know about entrepreneurship from somebody who's done it and now been in it for 15 years, I'd argue, has been very successful at it? What are the lessons or maybe more importantly, what are the mistakes that you made so that they don't have to go through the same kind of thing? We've made plenty of mistakes. They're probably too numerous to mention. And again, I'm saying this with all modesty because, you know, you never know in business. It's, you know, you live or die every day by, by the business that comes in. But one of the things I'm proud that we did was that we started with principles. It sounds kind of corny, but we started with research principles. We started with management principles. We started with the core mission of the business well before we started. And that was, that was important because you can get distracted by things that are happening um, and also new business opportunities, other things that people come to you with. And it's very important almost to have, it's almost like a constitution and you have a certain very fixed set of rules about the way you're going to manage the business. I would say it kept us out of a lot of trouble and it, because it, it just kept us to kind of stick to our knitting and focus on the things that we were good at and not get greedy by trying to do things maybe we weren't particularly good at. And uh, of course, we made those mistakes later on. But but the initial part, we survived mainly because we have that constitution of sorts. I think the fastest way to learn is to make mistakes, right? You have to, you're forced into it. And that's that sort of loss aversion theory, right? Whether it's a loss of money, a loss of time, a loss of whatever the asset is that is most valuable to you. If you have the threat of losing it, or if you do lose it, you learn a lot faster how to not lose it again in the future. Uh, amen. Amen to that. Liz. So on that note, we talk about history on the, on the note of losing. <laughs> That's what I <laughs> mean. <laughs> we, we talk about history so much when we think about markets. And when you write your pieces, you talk about history, you draw parallels to history and markets. Why does it matter, number one? Because you could argue, one could argue, that it really is different this time. And one of the things that I want to pull out of a recent piece that you wrote is a quote that was, long-term success in financial markets requires an understanding of mathematics and social sciences. So let's start with that. What are, what are the social science understandings that we need today that maybe were different or less important 10 to 15 years ago? Liz, I'm not so sure the social sciences aspect is different. What's different, I believe, is that people have placed more of an emphasis on quantitative skills in this business, almost to the exclusion of all of the other things that we learn when we're educated. Uh, and that includes you know, literature, it includes history, it includes all the things that make up someone who is well-educated. And I think it, it's important because the markets are made up of human beings with all of our flaws, with all of our emotions. And I think if, you know, if this could just be reduced to economic, uh, just to reduce to quantitative um, models, there would be no need for any of us. You know, a, a machine yeah. would have already replaced all of us 
in doing all of these things. And that, there's, there's a reason why that hasn't happened. I think there's a tendency sometimes for people to view finance and economics as a hard science, like chemistry or physics. And the irony is that those are the people that wind up making the biggest mistakes of all. So if you think of long-term capital management, there was a joke going around that Martin Biggs, a very famous strategist on Wall Street for many years ago, said, you know, that they were okay when they hired their first Nobel Prize winner in economics, they were okay. But once they hired their second Nobel Prize winner in economics, they were doomed. You start to think that you're smarter than the market. You become a little less humble when you have quantitative models. The markets are always changing because, again, they're made up of flesh and blood human beings who don't always make the mistakes of their parents, but they tend to make the mistakes of their grandparents. So let me distill it down. What I think I heard, number one, you can't beat the market just with quantitative models, right? You can't beat the market with a model that you'd push buttons in and expect it to outsmart everything that's going to happen because the market is a product very much of not only that mathematical side, but also the element that is human, the element that is emotional, the element that is psychological that that we can't get away from. And no matter how smart we are, no matter how educated we are, there's a lot of new investors in the market that are not classically trained in economics, that are not classically trained in finance and capital markets, and maybe actually don't have any experience in either of those fields, right? But they're doing pretty well. Yeah. And they are a huge force in the market. So it there's probably no better example than that to say that it it doesn't necessarily always matter what models you're using, what numbers you're using, that there's this this huge human element and, and social element of the space. Absolutely. And I, my favorite, very first book I read about Wall Street, and this is one of these things where, but long story short, uh, my parents were teachers and then I turned, I wound up loving Wall Street. And they thought like they switched babies at the hospital or something. <laughs> I, I loved it and I read everything I could. But the very first book I read on investing was Peter Lynch, which was called One Up on Wall Street. And one of the things he said is that generally speaking, the quantitative skills you need to be a great investor are not really math skills that, that would require more than like an eighth grade education, if that. And he had a very different approach in those days than some people do now. But he was a classic stock picker. He was looking for companies that other people didn't know about, um, that were a little bit smaller, that that he had an understanding of, that he thought would become very popular. And he became really one of the best mutual fund investors of all time, ran the Magellan Fund at uh, Fidelity for many years. And I don't think that's, that's not passe. That still exists. There are still people like that. It's just that there's a tendency for human beings to try to make things maybe more complicated, especially if you're selling something, more complicated than they need to be. I would encourage everyone out there that has an interest in investing, the only thing I would encourage them to do, I would encourage them to keep doing, just be humble about it. And just understand that, as we said before, you're going to make mistakes. And sometimes you're going to have a great trade. Just make sure you don't think you're the next George Soros when you do that, um, or the next Kathy Wood. You know, sometimes you have a good stretch and then other times it's not so great. So as long as you keep that in mind, I think everyone on the call here has the ability to be a good investor and to play with the big boys and girls on Wall Street. Well, and you heard it here first. All you need is an eighth grade math education. (laughs) I actually remember what math class I took in eighth grade. It was algebra two. And apparently what you're telling me is I didn't need anything after that, which was geometry, trigonometry, calculus, 
Nothing. I needed nothing else. Although there was a probabilities class in college that I think was probably pretty important. Yeah. And of course, you know, more education is better. But I'm just saying, I don't know if I would be deterred if I were an investor that that didn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily remember their calculus class or never took a calculus class from saying, well, I'm out. You know, I can't, I can't possibly be an investor because I don't remember calculus. I think that's silly. And, and I think that if, if people were quite honest with themselves in terms of the way they manage money, a lot of professional investors, you know, they're not using the, the, the most sophisticated quantitative analysis. It's a tool, but it's, it's certainly not the only thing that's driving their decisions. So markets have changed a ton, too. It just the makeup of the market has changed a lot since before the last crisis. I'm talking about the global financial crisis. The number of securities available has come down quite a bit. ETFs have grown immensely. We have all these new asset classes like crypto and NFTs and SPACs, other things that are are different. Quantitative easing wasn't a thing. The first iPhone was, you know, what, 2007, right? So we didn't have iPhones, at least not the way that we do now. Are we better off or worse off because of all those things? As an investor, you'd say, you're better off because it's always good to have options, right? So the more options you have, the better off you are. From a probabilistic point of view, you're better off. I think the risk is that, and I find this as somebody who's been a professional investor for 30 years, we have access to more information than ever before, which is great. The problem is that that can be a trap. And in some ways, I tend to think we have more information, but less wisdom or less knowledge. And it's more and more difficult to separate out you know, noise from signal. What's an important piece of information versus what's just another piece of information? And of course, I would say that the 24-hour news cycle, which existed since 2007, but you know, it's a relatively new phenomenon, is kind of really late 90s. When I started the business, that didn't happen, that didn't exist. So people were kind of more free to have their own ideas and other do their own research. I think we're better off because we have more options. I think we just have to be careful and, again, not making these things too complicated and and trying to make sure that the sources that you're using to come up with your investment conclusions are valid and that you don't get drowned in in trying to know everything about every investment. Because it's the one thing that you don't know that often is either the thing that really drives the success or makes it not work out. I think one of the other things to remember, also, by the way, this podcast is called The Important Part. So the idea is to get to the important part of everything instead of getting distracted by all that noise and all the different stuff that goes on during the day. The amount of information we have, you're right, it is a benefit, but it can trick you into thinking that you know more, therefore you're going to be more successful, right? Just because the information's available doesn't, number one, mean that it's all useful, also doesn't mean that it's all correct. That's correct. And that's something that I think everybody needs to remember. So I also want to talk about the comparison between now and the tech bubble, because there's been a lot of comparisons that people are drawing to that. Obviously, where valuations are, we've had a huge success in the returns of tech stocks. So let's just do a quick comparison there back to 1999-ish. Number one was Tina at play? And and for those listening, Tina is there is no alternative. Was Tina at play? Also, were you one of the first people that started to use the word Tina? I'll say modestly that I was the first person to use it in the investment business. I I wrote an an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. It also applies to individual investors, but it tends to apply to to 
pension plans that need to get a certain return who are increasingly finding it difficult because interest rates are so low and bond yields are so low. And so I was arguing that increasingly uh, pension funds and endowments and foundations were going to have to go into equities because they were only getting two and a half or three percent or three and a half percent from from a government bond. And that's kind of largely worked out. They had no, you know, no choice. As far as 99 is concerned, Liz, I, I think you know, there are elements of it that are similar. Valuations aren't cheap, but there are other elements that are very different. And as far as the TINA thesis is concerned, I would say that short rates by March of 2000 at the peak, uh, the Fed funds rate was 6.5%. So there was another alternative, which is to say you could just have your money in cash. You could just have your money in the bank and, and you would be getting a very, very good return by any standard, much better than you can get anywhere now. Which, by the way, 6.5% is pretty close to the long-term average return on the S&P, right? Which is somewhere between, let's say, 7 and 8%. So you could get 6.5% in cash. Right. And that's part of the reason why it ended. And that's why it's not the same this time, is that, as we know, the Fed funds rate is zero and we're getting zero on our cash. And the Fed is nowhere near tightening. It may, it, you may hear this talk of tapering, which is really just a way of saying they're going to slow down how quickly they're easing. Um, but it's a long way away from actually tightening monetary conditions. And so the market's expensive, but it's cheap relative to the other alternatives. In particular, it's cheap relative to bonds and, and fixed income securities, which I, I think are, are quite expensive. And so, um, again, it, it's... Uh, you may not be getting a bargain, but it's it's awfully attractive relative to the other alternative. Another recent piece that you put out, I think it was titled, Can the Fed Ever Tighten? So first of all, for the listeners, there's a difference between tapering and tightening. Tapering is likely to happen first, which is when they're going to cut back on the amount of assets that they're purchasing each month. But then tightening is referring to when they have to start raising interest rates. And your theory, Jason, is that they can't without disrupting the financial system. Is that fair? Yes. They've painted themselves into a corner in which tightening is going to, unfortunately, I think, almost necessarily engendered a lot of pain. There isn't a market, I don't think, that I've ever seen that loves rate hikes, right? Or the idea of rate hikes. True. This is this is a bit, Liz, I would say this is a little different or the, the ante is a little bit higher for a number of reasons. One, the size of financial assets relative to the economy is greater now than it's ever been before. And the size of the stock market is greater relative to the economy than it's ever been before. And so um, if the Fed tightens and you get a correction, that has a big impact on the economy, which then makes it harder for the Fed to continue to tighten. So, they, you know, they get into this vicious circle. Another reason is that so much of our, our debt is much higher today, our, our federal debt is much higher than it's ever been before, obviously. And most of it is funded in the short term. So over 50 percent of the 22 trillion of debt that we have outstanding to the public, we have 28 trillion altogether, but 50% of it matures in the next three years. Obviously it's benefiting from the fact that you have very low short rates right now, but if the Fed were to start tightening, what that would mean is that the federal budget deficit would increase pretty dramatically just on interest expense alone. And so the Fed also gets into a little bit of a box where by tightening, it's probably for good reasons or to fight inflation or other things, uh, but it, it could make cause other problems in other parts 
of the federal government. Those are the two main reasons why it's going to be very, very difficult for the Fed to tighten from here. I'm not saying they won't. I'm just saying that the the risks associated with them tightening are greater, I think, than they were in prior times because of the fact that the financial system is much bigger now than it's ever been before. Yeah. And one of the things that I love about your research, and that was a perfect example, is that it does a, a really good job of of cutting through all the information and saying, okay, but why? Right? Why does it matter? What's the real takeaway here? And then what's the statement? But let's think about the people that are nurses, the people that are teachers, the people that are individual investors in some other profession completely that don't have access to this kind of research. If you had to tell them how to get to some of these conclusions themselves or how to get to some of the information and cut through that noise themselves, what would be some tips? Well, um, you know, aside from listening to you, Liz, um, <laughs> I would uh, I would argue shameless that, plug. Thank yeah, you. shameless plug. Uh, number one, I have certain, and I'm an old. I'm very. I'm old, and I'm old fashioned. But I I have kind of tried and true sources that I use on a regular basis. And it's not to say I'm not open to new information, but these sources also provide new information. So I, I read Barron's uh, every week. I, I read Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times every day. I also talk to a lot of people just in my everyday life about what's going on in the economy. I'm very interested in talking to the bartender, a fair amount of those that I that I know. <laughs> For multiple reasons, I'm sure. not Maybe not just investing. Right. Or the sales clerk or or the taxi driver, and you can learn a lot just about the economy just by saying, gee, how is your business going? What are you learning? And, and you'd be surprised how many Wall Street professionals don't do that. It's always amazing to me also how useful it can be. And you can learn a lot about new companies that way. You can learn a lot about new technologies, new new things that are changing the business. It can also help you maybe keep you, you out of trouble if you hear something that maybe something's not going so well. And so the, the main thing is, I would say reading is fundamental, as they say, right? Very important, having a, a set group of, of sources that you have confidence in. And then I'd also say that, you know, trust your own judgment by, by talking to a lot of other people, because there's a lot of great resources that are just in your own life. You know, your kids could be great resources on a great new company, or your, your aunt uh, could be a great resource on what's happening in healthcare. So, you know, there are all sorts of Things and the beauty of the business, I think, one of the reasons why I've fallen in love with Wall Street is that intellectually, I think it can be one of the more interesting businesses there is because everything could possibly have an investment conclusion. And, you know, if you have your ears open and your eyes open, you know, you can learn a lot about a lot of different things. And so that, that's the best investment advice I could give. And also don't get too intimidated. Don't get too cocky about, you know, if you have some investment success, but also don't get intimidated that it's that it's some you know some otherworldly science that you know you have to be particularly trained to do, and I, I don't think that's the case. That's great advice, and one of the things that you and I have talked about, I know we we agree on this, is that I used to travel a ton pre-pandemic, and you know, in a, in a former life for business, and one of the places that I got as much insight as I could was when I was on the road and talking to investors of all different walks of life across the country because investing is is a different story in California than it is in Maryland, right? And understanding that from a different point of view everywhere I went was a, a huge benefit to me. And, and I know that, that you've felt the same way. 
Exactly. Investing is a social science, if you want to call it a science, but it's a social activity. And the more people you meet and talk to, the more informed you're going to be. And you don't, you don't just have to talk to investors. I mean, I have an enormous family. I talk to them about this stuff all the time. And I'm the only one in my family in this field. <laughs> so. Of course. Yeah, me, me too. There's a lot to be learned. And I think, Liz, you know, I, I have a certain, I don't want to say a chip on my shoulder, but I, I have a certain skepticism of experts or people that claim they're experts or say they're experts. Because I think there's a lot of wisdom just in, you know, everyday people. And I think there's an awful lot to be learned there. Unfortunately, sometimes the experts for whatever reason, don't listen to ordinary people or they don't care what they have to say. But I think it's at their peril when they when they do that. Last question. What are the themes that you think are going to shape the investment business until the next crisis? I'm not going to use that sort of open-ended going forward idea. So I'll say until the next crisis. Yeah. Well, the most important one is that I believe that inflation is going to be stickier than people think. It's been a long time since Inflation, I was talking to a, a, a senator, U.S. senator, two weeks ago, and we were chatting about the idea that inflation has not been a political issue for about 40 years. And, you know, really since the late 70s, early 80s. And my own opinion, and I could be wrong, is that I think inflation is going to be stickier than people think because of the policy mix that we have, monetary policy and fiscal policy and even regulatory policy. So I think that's going to be important for investors to think about because they should also think about their after inflation returns. And we call that the real return, right? So what are you getting after inflation? And I think that's just an important concept for people to think about, especially when they're getting so little on their savings. I think that's a major theme. And not to get too political about it, I think that leads into another theme, which is I do think there's going to continue to be a fair amount of populism that's infused in our politics, and that's true globally. And then the question will be whether it's left of center populism, you know, is it AOC, um, you know, or is it right of center populism or Donald Trump, right? I mean, but but I think I'm pretty certain that the populism part is going to be correct. If depending on the election cycle, people are going to choose one or the other. And I think you know they did that in the last two election cycles. So that's important because it's going to have a very big impact on on the policies that are being made to deal with inflation. Then, you know, last thing, I want to have some exposure. I do have some exposure to commodities and other things that hedge against inflation in my portfolio. I'm not saying it has to be the centerpiece. It doesn't have to be everything. You can still be heavily invested in tech stocks and all the rest of it. But I also think, you know, in terms of just being prudent, it's not a bad idea to have some kind of traditional hedges with commodities if that's your view about inflation, if you agree with that view. Sure. Well, and I've said for a long time, you know, you can play offense or defense with inflation. And you might as well, it's one of those, if you can't beat them, join them, right? Right. You might as well join the party. Um, I would agree with you. I don't think it's going to be entirely transitory. I don't think that we're going to stay at this level, at this above 5% level. No. But I don't think we're going to get back down to where we were pre-crisis, which was what, 1.8%. I don't see that happening again. And who knows, maybe we're both wrong, in which case we'll have to do another podcast when when we find that out. <laughs> we'll do the, the spilled milk exercise. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't think it's going to be transitory either. But you can you can play offense on inflation. And inflation is not a bad thing. It means that there's healthy demand, right? So far, we've seen inflation because it's a supply side issue. 
there's also demand. And if inflation is driven because there's demand, that's I think that's healthy, especially in an economy that's driven 67 to 70% by the consumer. Amen to all of those things. And I think at the start of the year, the Fed talked about, as you're using the term transitory, at the time, that was largely thought to have meant two or three months in the, in the spring. And here we are, we're in, you know, middle of September, and it's sticking around. And so I don't think it's quite as transitory as, as the Fed thought. And I think a lot of those supply issues are still there. And people still have a lot of savings. There are a lot of job openings, and people have a lot of savings. So I would assume that the demand side is going to continue to be pretty strong. So if you put those two things together, that's part of the reason I agree. Inflation is not going to continue to run at 5%, but it could still run at 3 to 4%, which is much different than what we were accustomed to before the pandemic. Well, I could continue talking all day, but we all have jobs to do other than this, I suppose. So thank you so much. Thank you. And I absolutely appreciate your time, and I will talk to you again soon. Great. Thanks so much, Liz. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. The main point that I took away was that it's not all about math. Humans still matter. Something I've always found really fascinating is the blend of psychology and investing. And what that all means to me is that no matter how quantitatively advanced someone is, we're all still participating in a market that's affected by people. So don't discount the human, psychological, and emotional element. The point is to look to real life for feedback on your investing ideas or even to find new ideas. Talk to people. And one of the examples that Jason recently gave was about a New York institution for hot dogs called Papaya King. He was standing in line behind another customer who had ordered a meal called the Grand Slam, which I think is two hot dogs, a drink, maybe some fries. And the total came to $14. And the customer was floored that it cost $14. And he asked the man behind the counter about it. And the man behind the counter explained that their input costs had gone up. Soybean oil had hit new highs. The cost of orange juice had risen. So they had to pass some of that on. And that's an insight that you hear just in everyday life. And it was a a Main Street way of saying inflation is here. So you have to talk to people to find those insights. There's a lot of people out there that probably have things to say about the businesses that they're in that you wouldn't know. The only way to get that insight is to ask. Well, that's it for this episode. For more from me, check out my weekly column on the markets every Thursday morning on the SoFi blog at sofi.com slash blog. And follow me on Twitter for daily takes on the market at Liz Youngstrap. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to bringing you next month's episode of The Important Part. SoFi can't guarantee future financial performance and past performance is no guarantee. This podcast should be used for informational purposes only and not deemed as a recommendation. Our automated investing is via SoFi Wealth, LLC, and is a registered investment advisor. Our active investing is via SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. For additional disclosures related to the SoFi Invest platforms, please visit sofi.com legal.